Good morning and welcome to the Football Dads podcast. I'm standing in for John Cross this week. He's sunning himself in Abu Dhabi, I'm afraid to say, so hope he's okay over there. It's been another rental week in the unpredictable world of English football. Uh, West Ham might have beaten Watford to boost their top four hopes, but how much damage has been done to the club's reputation with this Kurt Zuma uh, scandal? It's been a better week for Newcastle, though. They beat Everton to go back wins and climb out of the relegation zone. And what about the task facing Frank Lampard at Goodison Park? On the evidence of what happened up in the northeast this week, it looks like a huge one. Um, things don't feel much better at Man United. They could only draw at rock bottom Burnley, having crashed out of the FA Cup to Middlesbrough uh, the week before. Club appears to be in free fall, so what's going on there? Meanwhile, Man City still on, beating Brentford to go 12 points clear at the top, while Tottenham suffered a damaging defeat home to Southampton. Chelsea, meanwhile, are in Abu Dhabi competing in the Club World Cup. Is this a good thing or a bad thing for Thomas Tuchel and his players? Does this competition really mean anything to anyone? He's already fixed the backlog, so could it impact on Chelsea's bid to win bigger things come the end of the season? What about Wayne Rooney? He's subject to a warts and all documentary on Amazon this week. We thought we knew all about England's one of England's greats, but maybe we didn't. It's a very candid stuff. Um, <coughs> we'll look forward to some big games this weekend, including Liverpool's home game with Leicester tonight. Man United go to post Southampton when a defeat for Ranjit would be unthinkable in the current circumstances. Joining me to discuss all this and more, I'd like to say Andy Dunn, Chief Sports Writer of the Daily Mirror, Matt Dunn, Football Aficionado, aficionado even. <laughs> Probably neither. Warm welcome to David. <laughs> Manchester Correspondent of the Daily Mirror. Morning, fellas. Um, should we get the awkward one out of the way first? Andy, can I just ask you, obviously, just to recap for listeners who you have to be on planet Mars not to know what's going on with Kurt Zuma this week, but you obviously was filmed in his kitchen, kicking and slapping a cat around uh, in front of his child. Um, staggeringly, he got picked uh, to play Watford um, the following day. Um, what were you, what was your immediate reaction when you saw his name up on the team sheet, Andy? Right, it, it was... You know, I was sat in the um, press room at St James Park, actually, with a whole load of colleagues and having driven up there as well, I've been listening to all the chat about it and it was a given that, that he wouldn't play. You know, I mean, it was just accepted as a given that, that, that there was no chance of him playing. It was, it, it, he clearly couldn't play. Um, I mean, first of all, how about the reaction when you actually saw the video and, and heard the news, you know, things you, you thought you'd never report on. Sadly, we've been used to reporting on a lot of misdemeanors off the pitch with footballers, but we never thought probably have one of this nature. So that was the first shock. But then uh, going on to the team selection. And then, you know, I, I don't think you, you probably, I, I generally think that you probably couldn't have found someone who thought either A, should play, or either B, would play. And then the team news came through, you know, quarter to seven, you know, an hour before the quarter to eight kickoff. And, you know, it was just astonishing. And, and, and that, in a way, if you could take this story to another level, that's what took it to another level. You know, it's clear the story now hasn't, has become as much about West Ham's reaction to it um, as it has to, as it has about, you know, Kurt Zuma's um, abhorrent sort of actions in his own home. And that's, and that's what it's become now, you, you know, so, so it, it just escalates, you know, probably while we're talking today, there'll be another sponsor probably um, withdrawing from West Ham. There'll be more pressure on West Ham to act. But, you know, they didn't act in the first place now. You know, how can they drop him now when they've, they've already basically given him a, a sanction to go on and play? So the story now has become as much about the club and the absolutely, completely unfathomable decision to play him 
in that game, you know, which reflected badly on a manager that, you know, I think probably we've all dealt with for a long time and have all always thought was a man of, of strong principles and morals and somehow has allowed himself to do this. And on a board that, you know, that, that let's face it, um, I've struggled reputation-wise for a long time and this just isn't going to do them any good at all. You know, they had the chance, West Ham, you know, to immediately react just by, by taking him away and just say, right, you're not going to play. You're not going to play until you've been adequately punished adequately educated and you know go to him and, and, and say to him listen why have you done this try and help in inverted commas you know him you know because he must have an issue he must be he must be slightly sick so do this you know and, and take him out the firing line then you wouldn't have this response instead West Ham you know and, and I'm not being funny on a very very cynical level you know on a really cynical level you're thinking well David Moyes says well I've got to play him because I want to play my best team but you know Again, it was Watford at home, but you know, I mean, it, it's this mate. It doesn't matter who it was that you were playing, but he just needed to take out the team. West Ham's reaction to it has just made the story, if it could be any worse, an awful lot worse. Matt, you see plenty of West Ham. You've seen, we've all seen what a great job Moyes has done there in his second spell. You know, he sort of repaired the club's reputation and image. They've given given the fans a a team to, to be proud of, you know, the challenge <clears> at the top end of the table. How much damage do you think he's done in one fell swoop with his, in picking Zuma and ignoring the clamour for him, you know, to do the right thing and leave him out? Well, well, I, well I was there on Tuesday night um, at the Lutton Stadium. And, and if you'll humour me for a second, can I just read you something? Um, it's the rancid stench of arrogance and no accountability is choking our lives and the London Stadium reeks of it tonight. There, sport once heard, held as a paragon of fairness and excellence is blighted by greed and a wholesale disregard for our most treasured basic values. Tonight, some humans decided it was more important to allow a man who kicks defenceless, fragile animals the opportunity to kick a ball for entertainment. Um, that wasn't my first edition runner, unfortunately. Uh, anyways, I wish it had been. That was Chris Packham, the BBC wildlife presenter. His view on, on what was there. And to be honest, that captured the mood at the stadium. Nobody could believe that something as abhorrent as us having to watch this guy just 24 hours after the video amused out there, effectively putting on entertainment for kids, which is what football is at its basic level, um, you know, and for families. Um, and that was the big mistake West Ham have made this week. And I don't know why they were allowed to make, why David Moyes was allowed to make it. In the press conference afterwards, I even gave him an out and said, look, you had a call to make. You, know, you had to pick a team. Uh, and um, the understanding is he'd already picked his team before the video emerged. He was perhaps locked into football, think. Um, but I said, did, did you, with hindsight, make, a, make the wrong call? And he stuck by it. Uh, and that, that's kind of what, what they've got wrong. They've come out afterwards and punished the player. Chris Packham goes on to ask for... for some sort of legal justice, which I think is the wrong line. It's as Andy says, um, the guy needs some sort of education, some mm. sort of help, to be honest. Um, and the RSPCA, I understand, are being quite proactive in that and also quite sensible in that um, and not sort of looking to make scapegoats, but, but actually looking to look after animals, which is what their job is. Um but he what, can be prosecuted. Can I just say he can be prosecuted yeah. by the RSPCA, though, can't he? The, yeah, exactly. But my my understanding is, I think there's got to be value in doing that. Uh, and 
you know, he's paying quarter of a million to animal charities, which is more than a punishment than he'd get in a in a criminal court. Um, mm. You know, it may not be much for a footballer. That's a different argument. But uh, but actually, mm. I think you know him helping out, him perhaps doing some work with West Ham to you know promote animal charities. Yeah, and perhaps the good work do would be more useful than necessarily dragging this for a court case just to, to you know. I mean, I I understand, and hey, he should be, but the guy's supposed to be in pieces. I don't know what the benefit is of a court case, to be honest. Um, you know, th there are better things for courts and also R RSPCA money to be channeled towards than taking this guy to court. But at the end of the day, what was abhorrent about it was watching him play. And then every word David Moyes said afterwards made it worse. It's my job to get three points. Well, whoever, if that's his job, then whoever's writing his job description needs to be examined. And that's where my question mark really lies is how on earth did a board, which which boasts, um, you know, people with brand awareness uh, and you know captains of, of marketing such as Karen Brady, allow their manager to uh, put him on the pitch that night. Uh, and that's where there's been a massive failing because, to be honest, if he was selected on Sunday after David Mo after he'd been punished, after David Moyes had explained that, yeah, the fans are going to boo him, he's got to put up with that because of what he did, um, but explaining that he's got to get on with his life, I think that possibly would, would have been a way to move forward. But certainly not the night afterwards. It was too soon. It was just horrible. And as Chris Packham said, you know, it just really got to the to the senses that that this just felt wrong, uh, and that's where West Ham have failed. And I want I want to know why the board weren't telling David Moyes. No, I'm sorry, David. He's not available for selection tonight. David, welcome to the show. Mm. Thank you, gents. Um, <laughs> can I just ask you before we move on? I don't know about you, but I got the impression that when he was picked to play, I, I, I would West Ham have acted differently had Zoom have been kicking and slapping another human being? This is an animal. Oh, it's okay. You can play. You know, I'm sure if it had been a. David, can you hear me? Dave? David, can you hear me? Yeah, I think Dave. Yeah, can you hear me now? Yeah, fine. Sorry, I don't know what, what happened there. Did you get that question? Yeah, yeah I think I think they would have acted differently, certainly. Um, I, I think what Matt and Annie said is spot on, and I'm just following on from what Matt said. I, I find it staggering that there's nobody at any level at that at West Ham, at, at you know, boardroom executive level, you know, the media department could have overruled David Moyes and said, look, you know, hang on a minute, let's let's think about this. I mean, it was just such a failure of leadership, a failure of, of judgment. Um, you know, football tends to think it knows best in, in these situations, and often it doesn't. And we've seen time and again uh, clubs, you know, making the wrong decisions, um, you know, PR disasters when it comes to these these kind of decisions. Uh, and, and this is one of them. I mean, it's just morally abhorrent that, that Kurt Zuma was allowed to play. And what sort of message does that send out? We talk about football as being role models and and clubs being, you know, the sort of you know, centerpiece of communities. What sort of message? Uh, and have really effectively no consequences. Um, yeah. and, and, and it really brings mm -hmm. home the old adage that, you know, football clubs, you know, uh, know the price of everything.
and Kurt Zuma uh, and, and the potential to, to get fourth spot is more important than uh, and all the riches that brings and all the financial um, benefits that brings. It was more important to West Ham than than uh, doing the right thing uh, and they failed, failed on, on, on that level, certainly. Have you paid your internet bill this week, David? <laughs> Clearly Andy, not. There's your answer. Andy, Andy, <laughs> yes. just before we move on, he's been fined yeah. two weeks' wage, which the maximum um, a player can be fined. We've seen this happen countless times down the years. Players find a week's wage, two weeks' wage for yeah. misdemeanors. Does it serve a purpose? I don't think it does. What, what's your opinion on that? Well, well, I, I, as as Matt alluded to before, you know, if that's two hundred and fifty thousand pounds going towards, you know, um, animal charities, whichever may what it may be, Catholic sector league, then it does. It serves a great purpose. You know, it's, it's a long time since since those charities got you know a quarter of a million pounds in one hit, isn't it? You know, if you'll excuse the um, the, the expression, but um, you know, it's so it serves that purpose. I mean, yes, absolutely. I meant more in terms of it teaching him a lesson, the player a lesson. Well, no, it, it doesn't. Well, no, ex exactly. That's the problem. The, the problem is that, is that West Ham, you know, it, it's, it sounds daft, it, almost a duty of care to the player. I don't mean it in that way, in a compassionate way. But what I mean is, is that, is that if clubs aren't going to sack players for their misdemeanors, now, whatever it may be, unfortunately, what this has, do has done is also put into context, you probably... If you go on social media now, you'll find the debates will emerge of, well, actually, you know, what is the more heinous crime? Who is committing a more heinous crime? Is it a player, for example, who gets into a car, drunk and drink drives, endangering the lives of fellow human beings, whoever that may be? Or is it a player who kicks a cat? You know, and and, and you get into this whole, now we're, we're into this whole thing of, of, of what misdemeanor, you know, some might be emotionally sort of, you know, charged, et cetera, et cetera. But the bottom line is, when, I, when I'm on about a duty of care to the player, I don't mean as as, as that, you know, and listen, had, had they sat care to him, I don't think there's probably many people who would have disagreed with them. But to try and get to the bottom, it, it, it's basically to rehabilitate, to educate, you know, to counsel, to say, listen, like, you know, this is wrong. This is absolutely fundamentally wrong. Why are you doing this? Not just him, it, 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 anyone else who transgresses in any other way. And that's and that's and, and that is the way you do it. Now you don't just do it by finding him. I agree, or by finding him even more. I agree. Or do you do it by banning him? No. I think you probably take him out of the football and just say, "Listen, we need to get to the bottom of this. You need educating, um, and 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 pointing out where you're going wrong and how, and trying to get into your head. This is not the way. This is not the way to behave. And that's the only way. If you want more draconian punishments, then you know. It's within the FA. It's within the Football Association's power to, you know, they have catch-all, catch-all um, regulations, which you know, for bringing the game into disrepute. You know, I'm sure they could do that, but they won't. Um, but no, in answer to your question, two weeks' wages isn't going to be a massive deal to him. But what, what he needed was not playing. What he what he needed was was by West Ham playing him, gave him the impression, gave him the clear implication. That listen, you know, you may have done wrong there, and and that's terrible. But listen, mate, you know, make sure you you sort of um, you have a decent game tonight against Watford, and that's what's wrong. Because by a tacit implication is that you know what, it doesn't particularly matter what you do in the privacy yeah. of your own home, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Mark, can I just ask you? Um, over the last few weeks, we've seen the image of 
footballers, you know, take a bit of a battering, really. We saw Mason Greenwood arrested over serious allegations of attacking a woman. He's been released on police bail. We saw just this week pictures of Jack Grealish, which appear to show him worse for wear outside a, outside a bar in Manchester. Uh, and now this incident with Zuma. Are we, are we, are we heading down the, the dark old road uh, back towards, you know, footballers being, being real bad boys? Three footballers, that is, isn't it? Yeah, there, there, there's lots of footballers, and I think what we learned during COVID, uh, and you know, in the difficult times we've had recently, is that actually fundamentally, I think the nation is beginning to come to terms with the fact they're not a bad bunch as a rule. There are bad apples in there, and uh, and that there always have been. Um, but yeah, I think to start painting footballers as you know the one of the ills of society on the basis of the behaviour of three players. It is wrong. Um, but rightly so, they need to be called out whenever they show the sort of behaviour that isn't appropriate. Uh, and uh, and they are under the spotlight uh, and will remain so. Um, so. But no, I think it's dangerous to suddenly say, you know, footballers are going off the rails again because of all the good work that's being done you know, in so many other places, much of which isn't ever written about or seen. Um, but no, I think I think we're, we're better educated than that as a public uh, and appreciate more what these young men uh, and women, uh, you know, are, are doing for society. David, are you there? David? Inspirity's there, pal. <laughs> can you hear me? I'm there in spirit. Yeah, I can hear you, but it keeps the connection pretty poor here. So okay, let's I'm glad you're having problems with your internet. So um, I just wanted to move on to this. There's been some fantastic games this week um, in the Premier League. But you yeah. were at Burnley on, um, on Tuesday night. And um, you witnessed another pretty tepid performance from Man United. Um, you know, being out, knocked out of the FA Cup by a championship team at home the Friday before. You'd expect a real sort of backlash from, from United, wouldn't you, in terms of them wanting to get three points and, and put Burnley to the sword. I mean, they're left with a point. What, what, does that, does, did that performance tell you everything we need to know about where Man United are at the moment? What's going on? Andy's had enough now. Go on, Mark. I'm still here, Jess. <laughs> Andy? No, just getting through the book. No, that so was only my camera. We've lost um, we've lost David. Yeah, even talking about Man United. Sorry. Yeah, just just the fact that, you know, the, the, they've got knocked out by Middlesbrough in the FA Cup. You'd expect you'd expect them to come out all guns blazing at Burnley yeah. on Tuesday night, and they can't they can't beat the rock bottom team in the Premier League. They can't, but, but you know, you know. To be fair, Jeremy, I, I mean, I think you know they they they'd come out all guns blazing pretty much, didn't they? I thought I thought they were as good in that first half against Burnley as they've been for some time. They should wrap the game up, shouldn't they? You know, and they and they didn't have the the rub of the refereeing green in, in that first half, and should have really seen it by half time. They were poor second half, you know, and it's it is just literally par for the course for this season for Manchester United. That is the, that is the way the way they are. They haven't they haven't got that ruthlessness about them they haven't got the sharpness about them you know that the other elite teams have got and they are essentially part of that pack that we that we see beneath the top three you watch the games last night and um you know you've got plenty of teams in and around there underneath the top three beneath the top three you know certainly certainly four or five you know certainly west ham spares arsenal manchester united 
the way Southampton are playing at the moment, you could argue that, that they may well um, be on the up and, and, and try and hang on to the coattails. So, you know, United are what they are this season. And that is, they are in that second tier of the Premier League. You know, if, if, we, if we say there's probably three or four tiers in that Premier League, the top three, then the, then the five or six below that, then another clutch of teams, and then see the bottom five, they are in that second tier. That is that is the way they are, you know. And and they've got they've got issues. Then they're never going to, you know, as as long as you've got a midfield engine room that is as basically prosaic and as uh, as as just only functional as United have, you're going to have issues. As long as you've got a couple of strikers who between them, you know, um, have got, got over seventy years, you're going to have issues. And as long as you've got defensively players whose form has literally just fallen off a cliff, you know, I mean, there are so many players, you know, and, and and sometimes I think that, you know, we have a go at managers or coaches or systems, but sometimes there's no accounting for players basically just, just being so badly out of form that, you know, what can anyone do about it? Harry Maguire, you know, Jaden Sancho. So it's, it's just, it, it is literally just what, what they've been all season. And, and that is just, just below, well, quite considerably below the top three, a little bit above some other teams. David, have you put a pound in the meter? Uh, yeah, I topped it up. It so we should be okay. <laughs> You've timed your comeback well because we're talking about your specialist subject, yeah. Man United. We'll just, yeah. Before you left us, um, obviously you were at Burnley on um, Tuesday. Um, when you watched, I mean, you you saw it in full the full ninety minutes. But I mean, they looked to me like a, d- a decent team first half, and they were unlucky with a few of the decisions. But mm. second half, Burnley Burnley were much more than more than a match for them. Does that tell you where we're at with Man United that performance? Does it tell you where we're at, where they are at the minute? Yeah, I think I think I think it's been a recurring theme this season. You know, starting mm. games well, uh, getting on the front foot, you know, imposing themselves, you know, going a goal up. Uh, and then losing a kind of collective self-belief. Um, I mean, Burnley didn't have a shot on target in the first half. You know, United had, as you say, the two goals disallowed, the second of which n- no one seems to be able to fathom how that was disallowed for a foul by Pogba on, on Peters. I mean, the referee's assistant took eight to ten seconds to raise his flag, you know, after the alleged foul. So, yeah, they were unlucky in that respect. But, you know, Burnley were, they, they should have been out of sight, United, by half time. Um, and there was a failure to take the chances. I mean, it was the same against Middlesbrough. I think they had 30 shots, um, tw- you know, 20 odd on target or 18 on target, whatever it was, and managed one goal. Um, you know, when you do that, when you're that wasteful, it gives the opposition, you know, encouragement. Um, and, and that's happened too often this season with with United. Um, and, and as Andy said just then, you know, there are so many players out of form. You know, Harry Maguire. You know, if you're Victor Lindelof and you know, uh, Eric by Phil Jones, even you must be thinking, well, what do we have to do to get into this team? You know, and the captain is playing so poorly. Do you, think, got do you think Maguire should be dropped? I do, I do. Um, you know, f- purely on form, purely on form alone. You know, I, I, he's not playing well enough to justify his place, and that's not a well, it is a criticism of Harry Maguire, but it's nothing personal, it's just based on his current form. He's a liability rather than an asset to Manchester United at the moment, uh, and you know, it. it it will take strong strong management from Ralph Rannick to do so, but it will send out a message that that you know no one is sort of you know, untouchable here, despite you know uh, Maguire's status as captain. Um, I think Lindelof um, and, and Varane will be an interesting combination. You know, I think Bay and 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 Varane will be an interesting combination. 
I mean, he's done it with the fullbacks. You know, Wambasaka hasn't had a, a had a look in um, at, mm. uh, at, at right back. You know, Diego Dallo has come in under Randick and, and been excellent. He offers so much more going forward, defensively sound. Um, you know, le- left back is up for grabs, obviously with Tellez and Shaw, but certainly right back Dallo has just nailed down. So, you know, under under Solskjaer, you know, he was criticised for being too loyal to players. Um, you know, the likes of Maguire, the likes of Rashford, who were going through difficult times and not playing well, not justifying their places, but they were still getting picked, and that caused resentment. Um, amongst the other players who were basically not getting a look in, the likes of Lingard, you know, Donny van der Beek, uh, Eric Bailly, uh, you know, these guys were, were thinking, well, you know, hang on a sec, the, the team are performing so badly, and yet the, the players are keeping their their places week in, week out. So I think Ralph Rannick has got some tough decisions to make, but in a sense, they're not tough decisions because if players aren't playing well, the decision's made for you. You've got to you know, pick on form alone. So, yeah, I mean, look, as Andy said, you, you've got Ronaldo there who, you know, I mean, he, what must he be thinking? Having come back to to a team that was supposedly going to challenge for the title for the first time since Alex Ferguson, you know, they're now mired in this battle for fourth spot. And you know, on the balance of probability, I, I, I don't see them getting that. I mean, look, Spurs suffered a setback last night, losing to, to Southampton. But you know, given the respective form of all the teams, and given the fact Spurs have got a couple of games in hand, I think Arsenal have got a game in hand as well on them. I think it's going to go down to the wire fourth spot, but I, I just can't see United putting together a consistent run to, to get that fourth spot. And remember, you know, they've got to go to City, they've got to go to Liverpool. Um, they've got some tough games coming up in the last sort of 15 games of the season. So, yeah, it is it is a mess. But I think, you know, whoever comes in, and we think it's probably going to be Pochettino, it could be Eric Ten, Ten Hag, they've got a huge job on their hands because, um, and it's going to take, I think, four or five windows to get that Man United squad to a level where they can potentially, not even compete, but potentially compete with City and Liverpool and Chelsea because they're just that far behind. Matt, when you look at the wider picture at United, there's clearly a lot of players want, wanting to leave there this summer, um, which is the role reversal of times gone by when players were, would be desperate to join United and go be there. You know, It was an honour and privilege to play for them. We're now in a situation where we've got seven, eight, nine, ten players desperate to get out of there. Does does that fit? Does that scenario affect who they look at making permanent manager? Because, like D- David said, it's whoever they do decide to give the job to, it's going to be a really big, big rebuilding job, isn't it? Yeah, it's still the same as it has been since Fergie left. You know, it's that's that's the crisis that's gone on. Players are getting fed up with playing for managers that the board have no faith in. Otherwise, they give them longer contracts um, and a bit more backing in the transfer windows. And that the, um, the, the yeah, and having that expectation on their shoulders, but not the tools around them to, to get the job done that they want. That's no fun, you know, when you're expected to do a job that you actually can't do. So no wonder players want to go. It's, um, yeah, and it is a bigger managerial appointment this summer, same as it was last summer, same as it was when they didn't appoint managers when Solskjaer was in charge. You know, it was just holding, uh, you know, space and holding time. So yeah, it's it's still a mess. You know, but but they know that there, there's no, you know, the board the board have got to the, the new board now have got to step up and make a proper appointment who can build a squad, build a team, build a mentality. I mean, Spurs yesterday lost the game, but but at least with Conte, you feel that they're doing something. They go there's a direction of travel, and they need to make an appointment of somebody who is going to take United by the scruff of the neck and, and drag them back to where they need to be. Uh, and that takes that doesn't take some guy who has never really done it at the front line um, and he's going to go and step upstairs. This has got to be someone who's going to tell these players 
look, I'm in charge now. I'm here for the next two, three years. You either shape up or you get out. I mean, if you look at the players that Spurs got rid of in this window, that last window, that was a sign of intent. You know, you're getting rid of Deli Alley. You're getting rid of uh, the record signing. That's someone who's saying, right, I'm in Ali, charge. Ali was the only one who went on a permanent deal, though, wasn't he? True, but that was more to do with what they could what they could get done financially <laughs> uh, rather than the will. But, it, but it's saying to people, Conte's in charge. He'll get rid of the best players, you know, supposedly the best players. You know, he's, he's not going um, to be kowtow to players who have done it in the past but aren't doing it at the moment. You know, he, he's taking a club on and it's his club. You know, and that's what United haven't got at the moment. They need a manager who, you know, isn't a, a chancer, is someone with a record, with an established record, with, with a philosophy. Who is that person? Well, you know, I mean, I still, I'm very much in the Pochettino camp being there, but even more, you know, he hasn't got that record, but you know what he does. He builds a, uh, he builds a program and that's something that he's got. Other than that, you you wanted a con. They wanted a con. All these good managers are too cool. You, you look at where they've gone in elsewhere, and you think you've had been treading water, Manchester United, while all these appointments have been made around you. And every time someone comes in and does well in a club, you think that could have been you, United. And they've got to find one of those. Uh, and, it, and it is difficult because you don't know, you know, until you've got that hindsight. But that, but that's why they're the United chief executive and whatever because they're paid to make those sorts of decisions and do that sort of background and uh, and try and work out you know who they can get uh, and perhaps who they can entice away that, that we might not expect to be available you know, it's big money they get these guys get paid and they've only got one main job i mean every you speak to any chairman he says that's the most important decision i ever make is which manager to appoint uh, and you can be the greatest businessman but unless you get the results on the pitch, you're not going to make any money at your club. And and ultimately, that that seems to be what the United owners are interested in. So, you know, why not drag the fans along with them and, and make a good appointment? I mean, that's, that's sorry to interrupt, um, Matt. That, that's an interesting point there because it's really a failure from the top down at United. I mean, it was telling this week that the, that table came out that, that showed that they, 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 that they were the leading club in Europe in terms of transfer losses. I think they've made losses of around nine, close to a billion over the past decade, 940 million. Uh, and that's a failure of management. That's a failure of Ed Woodward from the top down. There has been no um, coherent strategy in terms of player recruitment at United since Alex Ferguson left. They've thrown money at it. They can't be accused of not spending. Um, but the transfer losses of 940 million tell the entire story. You know, you've got a player in Pogba who cost them a club record of 89 million who's about to you know, walk away for nothing. They're getting no return on him. They didn't get a return on Ander Herrera. Jesse Lingard's going for free. Um, you know, all these the, the, the failings in the transfer market. Um, I mean, and then you look at the players like Maguire, 80 million, who's who's not justified that. You know, Sancho, okay, he's playing well at the moment, but he, you know, 75 million, he's not he's not really come close to kind of justifying that that fee. There has been a, a real failure um of strategy. And when you compare that to Manchester City with all the transfer business they've done over the past decade, you know, they have a they have a vision, they have a strategy, they and carry Liverpool. And, and Liverpool, yeah. But you know, at Manchester United, it has been so haphazard. There has been no, as I say, coherent approach to player recruitment. Uh, and that has to change. That has to change. And, and, you know, hopefully for them, that will change with, you know, the appointment of John Murcher and Darren Fletcher to those roles. You know, guys who know the club who, who you know, and we're told that Richard Arnold, you know, who's Ed, Ed Woodward's successor, 
we'll take a back seat in terms of player recruitment and the football side, and, and we'll let those with the football knowledge, um, you know, do their jobs. Um, so, you know, time will tell whether that's the case. But uh, United uh, have got to get it right at that level. They've got to get it right at player recruitment level and in terms of the contracts they, they give out um, before they can even consider challenging on the pitch and, 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 and being successful on the pitch. It has to be right at boardroom level. It has to be right behind the scenes before they can um, even hope of getting back to the level they were under Sir Alex Ferguson. Yeah. Andy, you were up at St James's Park earlier mm-hmm. in the week. We both covered that game. Um, it felt to me like a really significant result for both teams, given the circumstances at the bottom of the table. I thought Newcastle yeah. were excellent in the second half. They really deserved to win. They show real good positive signs there for the future. Yeah, hey, hey, listen, it felt like inside that stadium, it felt like liftoff. It felt like official liftoff for Eddie Howe. Don't forget, this is a crowd that still sings the name of a former manager, um, who also happened to be a former manager of Everton. Um, and it felt like a really sort of significant moment in the Eddie Howe regime. You know, that's four games unbeaten now. That's two games on the spin they've won. That's sort of like a rarity down in the lower reaches of the Premier League. You know, it's so valuable. But the atmosphere inside the stadium was absolutely fantastic from a Newcastle point of view. You know, once they got, <clears throat> they went behind, they equalised obviously very quickly within 80 seconds and the whole, you know, the roof came off. And the second half, they were magnificent. You know, um, Sam Maximan got people out of the seats. Trippier was outstanding. They got a five-minute glimpse of, of Guimaraes. Um, and it was just, you know, you, you could really tell you forget what an asset that can be. That's sort of 52,000 people making the place reverberate with passion and with emotion. And it really felt like, and you looked at those two teams and you thought, Everton may still be a point ahead with the game in hand, but you looked at those two teams and there was only one of those two. If you had to choose between one of those teams, if it was a case of one of those two teams surviving, you know, which it won't be because obviously there's others, but if it was a case of that, then there was only one team out there. Um, you know, Newcastle were were far better in every single department. So, yes, you're right. It's a hugely significant result for Eddie Howe. It just felt like, you know, they bought into him then, you know. And all the noise about the Saudi takeover sort of goes away, you know, when they win a couple of games. That's the, the way of the world. That's sports washing, I guess. That's its purpose. And, and and they were good, Newcastle. You know, they, they were very, very good. Everton, on the other hand, you know, that was, as if he needed one, the earliest of reality checks for Frank Lampard. I mean, we mentioned, I mean, I'm not being funny, but we mentioned Spurs, you know, bold, getting rid of some of their players. Well, um, listen, they may have got no money for him yet, but they've had the results with, with Deli Ali. I mean, he came on for an hour and and, and was, 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 was quite... Staggeringly off the pace. I mean, it gave the ball happened. away, didn't he? For the um, well, yes. I mean, what, 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 what's happened to him? I just, I just do not know. So, that, that would be a huge task for Frank Lampard to get the best out of him. But you know, you look at Everton conceding, so they could have conceded four or five in that second half. Defensively, they were all over the place. Okay, they lost Yerimina early on, but Lampard has to find a way now. Listen. Van der Beek and Deli Ali strike me very much as Frank Lampard players. They really do. I mean, like you know, we saw it at Chelsea, attractive, attacking-minded players. But Everton need to defend right at this moment. They need to defend. They're conceding now. Over the last dozen games, they're conceding over two goals a game. They're conceding from all angles. They're conceding all different types of goals. He needs to get that that team, as we all know, the foundations of staying up 
are not to concede is to keep is to be as defensively um, tight as you can now has lampard has lampard got those defensive credentials yet in his coaching career the suggestions are the jury's out in it to put it to put it kindly in the sense that if you look at his one full season at chelsea you know his team for an elite team for the team that finished top 4 they couldn't stop conceding goals you know and that is clearly um at the moment an Achilles heel of his i i think it's a really good appointment it's lifted everton fans i like i like his positivity i like the idea he's got a point to prove but what tuesday night showed is that he has to somehow and the employment of ashley Cole might help in this he has to get everton defensively sorted out for them not to be dragged into another listen if Leeds play like they did last night and Everton defend like they did at Newcastle, Leeds will, will win at Goodison Park on Saturday. No doubt about it. So he has got to get that right now. So can Frank Lampard, the coach, implement a defensive system that keeps teams out? Because so far, I, I don't think in his career he's done it and he will need to do it to stop Everton getting further into that relegation trouble. Mark, Tottenham obviously suffered a damaging defeat last night. What do you make of that performance? Because... It struck me as being one on a similar thing to what Andy's just been saying about Everton defending poorly. You know, they didn't pick up runners. They conceded some sloppy goals. Emerson Royale gave an absolute masterclass in how not to play on the right side of a defence. Um, it just smacked of not being a Conti team. You know, we, we associate Conti's teams with being disciplined and organised. Yet they've conceded two goals in the last 11 minutes to lose the game. Yeah, no, it was poor from that point of view, and particularly poor from Emerson Boyce. I mean, I mean Emerson Royal. Um, it, it's um, I not quite don't really get that particular signing. I, I don't think he's particularly good defensively. Um, attack wise, his end product isn't that great, and he was certainly a weakness um, for Spurs late last night. Um, what I would say is that some of the football they played was was good. But um, but what was what was absolutely clear was that they were losing the midfield battle there. Um, uh, Hoiberg and Winks were uh, Oriol Romu on his own was stronger than both of them, and the delivery from Wal Prowse for both those last two goals Super. was superb. And Southampton actually played very well, and, and I kind of feel you know after caning Spurs last night for throwing away the lead that Southampton perhaps I didn't give enough credit to. They did play very, very well. Um, but what I would say about that is that Spurs will try. I mean, Reggio missed a great chance. It could have been 2-0 in the first half quite easily. Um, you know, some of the football they did play ripped Southampton apart. Um, with Kane on form again, it seems. You know, he was creating chances um, for people. Um, the, the speed of the goal, and, and, and it was a slightly dodgy one that gained the lead because there was a clear foul um, on Broya um, in the build-up, uh, which VAR decided was too far back to be taken into consideration. Um, but, but the speed of play by which they got from there to the goals was absolutely outstanding. So th there's a lot that was right about Spurs last night, which is why... I think, you know, we're not looking at them now and saying, oh, 2-1 up to 3-2 to down, oh, they're a bit spursy again. I don't, I don't think Conte's, uh, that, that's where his mindset is. Um, I don't think that's going to be allowed. Um, uh, and I don't think, I think this is uh, a brief knockback rather than the sign of 
that they're not quite up to it. And I still fancy them for that fourth place. I was going to ask you, do you, are, you are you pretty confident they'll, they'll nick that fourth spot ahead of the rest? Well, I, I, I see them putting together a better running than Arsenal. They've got to get, I mean, on games in hand, which obviously one was one of which was last night, then, then they should get the points to get them there. Um, Manchester United keep leaking points left, right and centre. Um, Arsenal, likewise, haven't really got the, the sort of any sign that they're going to put together a long run. And they tend to wilt as soon as they come up against anyone half decent. Um, and yeah, and I think West Ham, yeah, how, however many, you know, however focused they are on that fourth place and re- disregarding everything else, um, I don't know if they've quite got the squad to get them there. Um, but it, but yeah, I think Spurs. But also, I, I think West Ham will be hard to shift. But I think Spurs will do it. David uh, City breeze past Brentford last night two 0 uh, Mara's scored his let's have a look eighth goal in seven games. Um, you get the feeling City. We've, we're used to seeing them rip teams apart five 0 six 0 We've seen it countless times under Guardiola, but. These days, they look like a slightly different team in terms of the fact that they just get the job done, don't they? Just relent- one word I would use for, to describe them is relentless in terms of their, the way they churn out wins and just you know just keep keep stacking up the points. They've got 60 points now already, and we're still in February. Yeah, I mean, they are relentless, as you say, Crossy. They are you know, a machine, aren't they? Um, they are just consistent. You know, Much was made when they, at the end of that 12-game winning streak in the league when they drew at Southampton. Um, you know, and, and they responded by by beating Brentford with the minimum of fuss. Um, yeah, I, I think. I mean, it's you know, it's going to be very, very interesting to see how you know that that game between um, City and Liverpool. I think it's April the ninth. You know, will be a potential title decider. But even then, I think City will have kept Liverpool at bay to the extent that it won't be a title decider because you know, even if Liverpool win that, I, I, I still don't think that City will yield enough points for Liverpool to get past them. Uh, and, and, and that speaks to what you just said, Crossy, about the, the consistency there. I think what's interesting as well is that Guardiola's teams, you know, Barcelona, Bayern Munich, and, and, and obviously this, this City team, are, are sort of lauded for their, you know, the attractive way that they, 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 they play, you know, the kind of um, the, the stylish way they play the game. But I think they're on course now as well. I think over the last 10 years, and, you know, Bayern Munich, Barcelona, and City, um, he's got one of the best defensive records as, as a coach in terms of, uh, you know, goals conceded. And I haven't got the figures in front of me now, but I think City, I don't know what they conceded this season, but it's they've been, they've been superb defensively as well this season. Um, so, yeah, they are efficient. They are a machine. They're, they're, they're going to win their, their, I think it's what it is, third title in four years. Or, yeah. Yeah. yeah, so, you know, they are they are the standard bearers. They are the team to beat. Um, and, you know, they, 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 they keep on, you know, we go back to Manchester United, but... You know their lack of recruitment. City just get the recruitment right year after year, year on year. You know, you look, they lost company. They brought in Diaz. Um, you know, they they brought in Ferran Torres, sold him for three times the amount they got him to Barcelona. Really? I mean, what they, so they sold are sold him to a club that's bankrupt. Pardon? Yeah, sold yeah. him to a club that's bankrupt. I mean, but but on a business level, they are they are, they they are you know you can't fault them. They you know they. You know, they, they they buy the right players. They very rarely these days, you know, buy a dud in the transfer market or, or get, you know, their, their judgment is really wrong. And and they sell on players for huge fees. You know, Sane as well went for, I think, he was bought for 37. I think he went for 55 million. Yeah. 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 They, they buy players and sell them on a, at a profit. And so the business model is, is superb, you know. And 
and you know they they are um, the leaders in every every aspect on the pitch off the pitch um and they're going to be hard to shift you know as champions yeah. uh, as, as everyone's found you know liverpool are the only ones to do that in the last few years can i just ask you um Grealish has obviously been in the headlines for the wrong reasons this week. Yeah. <laughs> aside from the fact that he, you know, he likes a night out, um, as we all do, to be fair. Um, what have you made of him this season? Do you think he looks like a player who is finding that hundred million pound price tag a bit of a burden? Because you know, we saw him at Villa, winning games for Villa regularly. Okay, he's he's, he's still getting used to Guardiola's systems, and he's he's now competing for a place in a much much bigger and better squad, but. Mm. When yeah. he does play, look. When he does actually play, he looks like someone who, I don't know, he's lost that confidence in taking yeah. a player on or trying something different, or you know, because that's what we know him for. It being a bit of a, being yeah. a bit of a different player. He looks, he looks inhibited, doesn't he? He yeah. doesn't look as confident as he did at Villa. I mean, I, it was interesting. I, I did an interview with Rodney Marsh, um, who, who now lives in um, in, in Florida, um, who who was a maverick player, as we all know, and made the same move, you know, to, to, to Manchester City in in 1972, and I think. I was only a year old then, but uh, so I don't remember that, remember that clearly. But I think I'm right in thinking they were four or five points clear when he joined them in the March in 1972, and he was seen as the final piece in, in the jigsaw um, you know, to get them over the line. And by his own admission, his his signing disrupted City to the extent they lost the title. I think they finished fourth. Um, and you know his career was was you know I think he had four years at City, Rodney Marsh, and you know he you know he, he didn't enjoy the, the same kind of stellar career that. that that everyone thought he would, and he came for big money. I think two hundred thousand at the time. Grealish, okay, his his signing is not going to cost City the title, but he's a he's an, a very similar player to Rodney Marsh in the sense that he's a stylish, individualistic player uh, who's come there, and he, and he he's found it hard. And what Marsh said was interesting. He said that uh, at Villa, um, whenever they recycled the ball, they they give it to Grealish. It would the ball would go straight to him because he was their star player, and you know give it to him, see what he can do. At, at City, he's surrounded by so many good players. He hasn't got that. Um, you know, and I think he finds it hard, and I think he's he's finding it difficult. And also, you know, he, he doesn't take on players the way he did at at, um, at, at Villa. You know, he, he you know he, he tend to cut inside and shoot on his right foot. You look at the amount of times that he, he passes the ball back to the left back uh, and, and or into midfield. You know, so yeah, he has been strangely subdued. I mean, I think he's got three goals and three assists in twenty five games. I think it is, yeah. which which is is not a, gr- a great return for a hundred million. Um, but you know we have seen players take time to to, to adapt to, to new clubs, new surroundings. So I think we need to give him time. Um, but yeah, he is certainly not as dynamic and, and flamboyant as he was at, at, at Villa. Um, and you know maybe maybe it takes time to get used to Guardiola's system. Maybe it takes time to get used to a, a new role in a new team when you're you know you you know you were the kind of you know big fish in a small pond at Villa and, and, and the reverse is true now at, at City you're, you're, you're suddenly a small cog in the, in the wheel there um, so yeah I mean look he, he's such a talented player we all know that but as you said Crossy you know I, I thought it was a bit of an insult to everyone's intelligence the way Guardiola I, I know why I did it he's protecting his player but I mean anyone who saw that video of Grealish um, can draw their own conclusions about his um, uh, you know state of mind and, and, and uh, whether he was sober or not um, and I think there, there, there seem to be issues there. I mean, it's not the first time it's happened. You know, he was he was dropped along with Foden uh, when they turned Christmas. Through, yeah for Christmas. I think they were they kept on the bench at Newcastle, weren't they? I think they beaten Leeds yeah. seven nil uh, and turned up a training. You know, the worst for wear. So it's not as if there aren't you know there wasn't previous here with Jack Grealish. And I think he's got to be careful because um, Guardiola has you know said you know made no secret that you know he said to us on many occasions in press conferences players have got to lead their lives the right way they've got to eat the right things you know sleep you know lead their lives you know in a kind of monastic way 
um, uh, you know, off the field. Uh, and, and, and that's not certainly the case with Grealish, you know, or it certainly doesn't appear the case with Grealish. And, you know, you wonder whether there's a danger of him, you know, um, sort of, you know, ruining what, what, what is a potentially huge opportunity for him at Manchester City um, with his, with his, with his off-field lifestyle. You know, that remains to be seen whether Guardiola, I'm sure he has had a private, you know, word. I mean, it's the old Sir Alex Ferguson, you know, uh, sort of approach, isn't it, you know, uh, you know, protect them in public, but privately, you know, yeah. let them know in certain terms what you think. And I, I imagine that's what's happened yeah. um, with Grealish on this occasion. Andy, the Club World Cup is taking place. Mm. Chelsea are over there representing uh, Europe, uh, having won the Champions League. They beat the Giants that are Al-Hilal last oh. night, 1-0. Uh, mm. Thanks to Romelu Lukaku goal. What's your take on this competition and the timing of it specifically? Is it is it the right place for Chelsea to be right now or is it just a, a money-making exercise from FIFA? I, I've got no objection to it at all. I, I think when, you know, when history books record um, achievements by football clubs, then the Club World Cup is there on it. I think, I, think, I think it's a good thing for them to go to. I don't think, you know, listen, Chelsea are, in terms of fixtures played, in terms of Premier League, fi- league fixtures played throughout um, you know, the times when um, mm. Omicron variant was, was causing a bit of havoc with the schedule, Chelsea were ahead of the game. You know, Chelsea are, are, ahead of, are ahead of the pack in terms of the amount of Premier League fixtures they've fulfilled. Um, I don't see they're going over there and playing a couple of games. Is any particular hardship to them. They won't be, you know, certainly that game in particular. I'm sure the final will be, but um, um, that game in particular wouldn't have taxed them massively and it is you know a competition it, it is well you know it, it's got history to it you, you know people think it's some you know listen going way back it was more it was generally just a basically the the champions of europe versus the champions of south america who faced off in a, in, in a one-off game it's clearly expanded now and clearly fifa are going to expand it even further um so it's here to stay um, but I've got no, I've got, I don't see, I, I, I keep hearing and reading about how this might affect Chelsea, but I don't see it having any effect in terms of a detrimental way at all. And listen, you, you, you recall that when Liverpool won it recently, you know, it was considering they'd won everything, pretty much everything else that year. It, it, it was, it was, it, it was a, a really valuable part for them. Looking back at, you know, what, how many trophies, and I'm sure Klopp is very proud of winning that. And I'm sure Thomas Tuchel will be, Equally proud if, if he wins that competition. I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't see any negatives in it really, Pete. Matt, do you agree with Andy? The, the play Palmeiras in the final on Saturday. If they win it, they'll be officially be the world champions. Um, do you think that'll mean something significant to Tuchel? Um, I hope not, because I don't think it means much to anybody else. I mean, it's it's, it's FIFA getting to their claws into club football in a way that they want to get their claws into everything that can possibly make them some money. Um, it's a meaning that, I mean, I disagree with that. I mean, it's, they've stru- I mean, it's got a long history, but it's been a long history of trying to get off the ground with various sponsor opportunities, playing games in Japan like they used to play in Tokyo, didn't they, in the early 80s? Liverpool went there and played on a, on a sand pitch. Um, and it just the whole thing. It doesn't have any sort of meaning because it's being played at an inconvenient time when Chelsea's focus is on on other things, you know. Which who are the European champions are always going to be 
you know, one of the, the, the favourites to be the world champions just because of, well, that's where the money is. But, you know, I think picking one representative, it, it was the weak. I, I don't think it means anything. If Chelsea lift this trophy, we're not going to suddenly say, well, no, they are the best team in the world because people have already decided, you know, you speak to any manager and, and they'll probably say that anyway. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't think there's any particular strength. If all teams in the world, you know, like some giant Champions League were, were competing seriously for it, then I think it would have a little bit more meaning. But it's just a thrown together bunch of results, um, you know, over no period of time, stuck somewhere in the world, uh, an inconvenient time. That I mean, we, we say, I mean, it's a blessing that Chelsea have avoided the COVID thing because if they played as many games as Spurs have played this season uh, and had to go out there, we'd all be screaming what a, a farce it was. Um, so, so thank goodness, you know, they've been largely untouched by the whole COVID thing. But no, I, I don't buy into this at all. If finally UEFA and FIFA want to knock their heads together, work out an integrated global calendar and find space for a World Club Championship, yeah, I'll be interested because it'll be at a time when clubs can take it seriously. You can have a few more than just one representative per continent. You can make something of it. Perhaps not every year. You know, perhaps have the Champions League winners for the last two years or whatever, or the finalists for the last two years go over there. Um, but have something meaningful and say, and let's declare the best team in the world. But but at the moment, it just seems just something to raise a bit more money for FIFA, which I don't necessarily think is a good thing. You want to wear a lot of guns. But the origins, you know, I mean, I, I, I like the I, I, I do the like concept's the idea. a great one, but they're doing I, it. I, 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 I like some well. different, you know, and we routinely, you know, we're so insular, not only in the Premier League, but in Europe. We're so insular in terms of, like, we're the best. Why do we need to play everyone else? You know, but I quite like the idea. I mean, I mean, we know how seriously the South American teams take it. And I quite like the idea of the best team in Europe, which Chelsea are by virtue of winning the Champions League. Meeting the best team in South America, which is Palmeiras this year. I, I, I like that idea, and I used to like the feistiness yeah. between. I, 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 I like it. It's different. It's different. Yeah. If you want to well, go, it's and, a you know, going to watch reserve teams in the Carabao Cup, then that's fine. But Fergie, Fergie yeah. sacrificed the FA Cup one year, didn't he, to take his team to play in this competition? Oh, oh it means something. To him. Tell me, I mean, I mean, it means something. It means something in you know Real Madrid's history. I, mean, I think they were the first team to win it in. And Matt says about history, but I mean, it, it's over 60 years ago that the first one took place. You know, they, they, these mean things to managers and they will to players as, as well, just because they don't fit in with the Premier League schedule that, you know, we think is the be all and end all in world sports. I don't think it really matters that much. You know, if it's interfering with, you know, I, I don't know, whatever, you know, teams sending out, you know, third teams to play in the FA Cup. So what? David, um, you went, to, you had an evening out last night, I gather. I did, yes. You went to watch the screening of the Wayne Rooney documentary on um, on Amazon. Um, you and I both covered his entire career at Man United, and it was a you know, it provided endless front page headlines, endless back page headlines. It was always entertaining seeing Wayne Rooney play for Man United. We think we'd like to think we pretty much know everything that's gone on in Wayne Rooney's life, but do you think we've do you think we've learned something, some new things from this documentary? Yeah, I think I think we did certainly. I think he was very, very, and, and yeah, those who haven't seen it, I think it, I think it's it's broadcast tomorrow on on, on Amazon Prime. Um, but you know, having seen it last night and, and read the interviews he's done, the promotional interviews, he's been obviously very candid, in particular about uh, his drinking. 
Um, you know, we all know he's, he, he struggled with that and you know, the off-field misdemeanors and, and indiscretions that, that kind of blighted his career. Um, but I think that's that's the thing I take away from it. Um, that's the most striking aspect of the documentary, how candid he is about it. And he clearly wanted to talk about it. He clearly felt that, that it was something he had to get out there and, and that, that, that he wanted to unburden himself, if you like. Um, and you do wonder, you know, the kind of player, you know, how much more he could have achieved had he kind of looked after himself better. And he will probably acknowledge that. I think he, he touches upon that in the film. Um, so I think that's the thing I'll take away from it, how candid and, and also Colleen as well. You know, again, you know, he, he talks, there's a real sort of vulnerability about Rooney in this film, you know, that he that he admits to his mistakes, that he, that you know, getting him the wrong crowd early, early on in his career as well. You know, um, you know, uh, uh, you know, he comes from, you know, background where he said it was very easy to kind of go down the, 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 the wrong path. And he, and he kind of I think he had that kind of self sort of self-destruction within him. And he has to kind of watch out for it. And we've seen that, you know, down the years, you know, with all the off-field um, episodes that he's become embroiled in. Uh, but I think it took a lot of courage to to, to face up to those and, and tackle them head on and, and talk about them. Um, and I, and I think it does, it does give people a different side to, to, to Rooney because, you know, many people will just see Rooney the footballer or Rooney the the kind of guy that that, that, that ends up on the front pages of, of newspapers for, 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 you know, things that he's done that are salacious and, and, and whatnot. And yeah, he, uh, he doesn't try and excuse them in the documentary. He doesn't try and defend them. I think he tries to explain them. I think he tries to. He talks about how the pressure of and the expectation of, of of being, you know, such a high-profile player for Manchester United and England. I mean, you know, let's not forget he was captain of both. Um, you know, that's what led him to 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 sort of shut himself away, as as, as he says, and, and and drink for two days solid and. And he sought solace, as a lot of players have done. You know, I mean, it's, it, he's not alone in that. You know, you look at Paul Gascoigne, Tony Adams, Paul Merson. You know, the, you know, sportsmen at, at the elite level. This is this, this is high pressure, and and you know, they, they need an outlet. Um, and so, yeah, I think that, that that was the most interesting thing. I think also as well, you know, there's there's contributions from Rio Ferdinand, David Beckham, Gary Neville, uh, Jose Mourinho. Um, <laughs> the, the one glaring omission from the, the from the film is, is Sir Alex Ferguson. <laughs> you know, the only, the only time he appears is in archive footage, and I think that's pretty telling about their relationship and and you know how how, how that ended. Um, I ask, can I just ask you about Fergie because hmm. he was asked about his mistakes he made, and he said he feared he could have actually killed someone, drink driving, or you know, it, it, it just shows the depths he'd gone to in terms of how much alcohol he was relying on. Yeah, yeah, he continued to train and play. Do you? Do you, do you, are you surprised that he got he, he was able to keep that from someone like Fergie? Because Fergie obviously was infamous for knowing everybody's business, especially his players' business. And clearly, mm -hmm. you know, either Fergie knew and turned a blind eye to it, or he didn't know and somehow oh. Rooney managed to keep it Fergie knew about it. And if you if you remember across in Fergie's second autobiography, I think, he 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 tackles that issue with Rooney. He said that he had Rooney had to keep on top of his physical condition because if he was off it for for whatever reason, if he'd been out drinking or whatever, or if he was eating the wrong things or not, you know, sleeping properly, whatever, you know, he was the kind of physical build, you know, the way that kind of barrel chested and, and you know, he would carry weight, you know, he had to be in peak condition. So, and I remember there was that infamous time when uh, Christmas 2011, uh, when uh, Rooney, Darren Gibson, and Johnny Evans turned up for training. They've been on a night out, I think, in Southport. They lost as well, didn't they? They lost, well, they Blackburn. lost Blackburn on New Year's Eve 2011, 3 2 at Old Trafford. Uh, and he dropped the three of them, you know, because you know he felt he had to, uh, as, as as he did throughout his you know time at, at Manchester United, that the team was bigger than the individual. 
Uh, and that ultimately, you know, that, that defeat ultimately cost Manchester United the title, if you, if you like, because they lost on goal difference, didn't they, to, to, to City yeah. uh, on the final day of the season. So Ferguson was aware of Rooney's drinking, was aware of, you know, how we had to kind of keep him in check in terms of making sure he was in the right condition to, to maximise his performance level. So I don't think it was. A, I don't think it was a surprise um, to, to Ferguson. He knew about it, and he and he and he did his best to try and you know make sure that Rooney stayed on the straight and narrow. Um, and I thought the other interesting thing was that it, it revisits in in detail the documentary, uh, the infamous time in 2010 when Rooney you know tried to force his way out of the club and, and questioned the club's ambition and and uh, in the transfer market and, um, and 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 Rooney says you know and and he said last night you know that. That everything I said about him has come true. You know, he was right, and, and the Alex Ferguson couldn't get out the door quick enough in, in 2013 because he saw the lack of investment uh, and, and, and the failure to properly invest in the squad, and that's really kind of been the issue. You know, over the last decade since since Sir Alex left. Um, yeah, yeah, it, it's it's really interesting. I think it does give a, a different side to Rooney, and I think a, a valuable insight into into him. Um, and you know, he, he's he's a pretty astute guy, Rooney. You know, he gets. A bad press, if you like, in terms of you know a lot of it is brought upon himself, but I think there there is there is a um, you know a deeper level there to him, and I think that that that's explored in the film. Good stuff, Matt. Just looking into the weekend's games, it's obviously another round of big games. What stands out for you? I've got written down here. Obviously, Man U are playing Southampton. Who you know, it's easy to overlook the job Ralph Hasenhüttl is doing there. Yeah. I mean, you know they got a draw against City the other week, um, they beat Spurs at, at Spurs last night. That'll be a real tough game for United, won't it? And in the circumstances, you know, they can't afford to lose that game, can they, United? Well, no, they certainly can't. And if Southampton play like they did last night, then there's every chance they will do. Um, yeah, it's it's a remarkable job, the one that that Hazen Hootle has done down there, because picking up, I was at that 9-0 at Leicester, and you think there's a manager who's not going to be there for much longer. But to turn it around and turn it around so spectacularly to make Southampton a team that from the first minute against Spurs last night, they're in their faces. They're going to make it awkward for anybody. And yeah, Manchester United yeah, can't afford to be off it at all if they're not going to drop more points. So that's a really... It's a, I tell you what, it's a, it's a test of whether Ranić can motivate a dressing room given the, the cards he's been dealt. Um, because if he can't get a, a bounce-back performance after the result of Burnley, then I think you've got to ask questions as to whether you know, they're in danger of missing out again just because of making such a crass appointment. Uh, and again, it comes back to the board as, as Disco was discussing earlier. So, no, that, that is a standout game. Um, the one that could become the standout game is the one that I'm at, I think, uh, and it's an intriguing one, and that's... Um, not normally top of normally banker for last on match of the day, which is Brentford against Crystal Palace, um, unless uh, a certain Christian Eriksen makes his return to the Premier League, which uh, we all hope, you know, when it happens, happens safely. Uh, there are noises, you know, Thomas Frank refused to rule it out last night. Um, so uh, I'm be heading there to, to wait and see, but it would be fantastic just to see him, you know, back out playing yeah. football again. Totally agree with that. Andy, quickly, um, Liverpool play Leicester tonight. Mm. Um, Leicester were humiliated in the FA Cup at the weekend at Nottingham Forest when they played like a pub team, to be quite honest. Um, mm. Is the pressure on Brendan Rodgers? 
Yeah, I think there is pressure on him. I don't think there should be any pressure on him. Um, you know, I think he's done enough there to allow himself, I wouldn't say a season's grace, but certainly, you know, to allow himself this 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 dip in form, this inconsistency that's blighted them this season. But I'm afraid it's the modern way that he will be under pressure. There's, there's, there's no getting away from that. You know, too many teams have changed managers for other owners not to look on and say, well, that's the way to do it. Uh, I do also think that his owners now are are listening to are listening are listening to, to to members of the public calling into radio stations or listening looking at social media and seeing the reactions to to defeats you know bad defeats like the one that happened at the city ground and and they will react so so it's a simple answer yes he's under pressure no he shouldn't be Right, just before we finish, guys, I've got on this schedule, and finally, so as a tribute to the Winter Olympics, which are currently ongoing in China, um, what is the coldest place you've ever been to, to work in a, from a work perspective to cover a game or a sporting event? You're a well-travelled man, Dave. What, what, what do you think? Two, yeah, two spring to mind. One um, uh, in Denmark, FC Mitteland, uh, mm-hmm. would have been 24. 16, it was certainly Man United under uh, Louis van Gaal, I think maybe 2015. They lost 1-0, but my abiding memory of that was it was absolutely freezing. I had thermals on, everything on, mittens, you name it, and it was absolutely vitally cold. And the other one uh, was Man City uh, were playing CSK Moscow uh, away. And it was a game uh, when it was meant to be played behind closed doors because Moscow uh, had, uh, had the ground closed for uh, racist chanting by their fans. And uh, miraculously, a section of fans managed to get into the stadium, uh, home fans. Um, but I remember the, I think it was like minus four or minus five. And it was so cold, my laptop packed up, literally. Mm. <laughs> just didn't work. So yeah. I, had to go down. I had to go down into the uh, into the stadium, into the press room, thaw out. And the laptop had to thaw out. And eventually, it kind of came back to life. And I was able to do the second half from downstairs. So, yeah, that's that's the coldest I've been. It was, uh, yeah. You'd have warmed it up with some, some, some red hot coffee, wouldn't you? Pardon? You'd have warmed it up with some red hot coffee. <laughs> naturally, naturally, of course, yeah. That, Matt, that... Were you, Matt, were you in Moscow for that Leeds Very game? Very much so. Minus 22 we had. We, I <laughs> see your minus four and Rage, you minus 22. Uh, but we didn't actually have a game. Um, and the reason was it was with Leeds. And the reason was their uh, undersoil heating had packed in the previous Friday. Uh, and Russian communication not being what it was. They didn't tell anybody until the morning of the game. Uh, and suddenly said, "Well, no, we've not been able to get any heat on it, uh, and so it was cancelled." So, um, so yeah, but it, that that was cold. That was take that, a step yeah. outside of the hotel, uh, and your nose starts running. And the next step, it had frozen. You felt like you were walking around. I remember big... the keys on my keyboard w- w- weren't working; they'd actually frozen solid on the yeah. Well, yeah, thankfully we only had to do we did well. We did a match preview, didn't we? But we didn't have to do the game. Yeah. So the game I'll take you to. I'll take you north and very north uh, into the Arctic Circle, uh, Tromso, uh, which a couple of clubs have played up there in the past. I went there with Spurs in 2013. The thing that struck me—it's really weird in Tromso. There are no snowmen. In this country, as soon as we get a smattering of snow, everyone's like, let's build a snowman. It's a novelty factor. I was going to say, but there, there's just, oh, it's snowing again. They don't even bother. Oh, we went there, I think it was November the 28th, if I recall rightly. Um, uh, and we went up to this ski resort um, in a bus that had chains on its tires. So it was flying around these corners at 30, 40 miles an hour. 
it was that virtually like a thrill ride because they're used to it again. Um, we went up there, watched the sunset, which we were told was the last time we'd be anyone there would be seeing it until February. Um, so, so we saw that, and we got to the ground about an hour before kickoff because we knew it was open and didn't have anywhere to hide. And, and the ground was covered with six inches of snow an hour before kickoff. And we're like, what on earth's going on? But two tractors came on, up and down, piled about a 30-foot drift, absolutely pristine 3G pitch underneath, a glist, you know, green thing. They used the orange ball, which is only right in the circumstances anyway. But, yeah, Spurs won 2-0. But the best bit was we decided it was a crisp, such a crisp winter's night that uh, Paul Jiggins and I decided we'd walk back down into the town from the stadium. Unfortunately, um, yeah, we've been appropriately dressed, well, from the ankles up, both of us, uh, for the for the cold weather. But Jigo had chosen to wear slippers, I think, and, and they lived up to their name. And I kid you not, I thought this only happened in cartoons. But three times he fell on his backside with his legs going higher than his head on the way down. And, uh, and thankfully he wasn't seriously injured, but it was one of the funniest sights replicated three times, like I say, that I've seen on a trip. But, uh, but yeah, no, that was cold. How did, the, um, how, did the, how did those tractors go again, Danny? Sorry, you probably couldn't see the hands. Perfect tandem. It's, I tell you what, it was an advert for 3G pitches, which we're, we're very snotty about in this country. But, but, uh, but it was just incredible to be able to play football there. Yeah, literally when the pitch was under six inches of snow mm. before. And uh, and I'm going to throw in a quick one because it's a bugbear of mine as a Mason United fan that uh, perhaps we need to look at 3G pitches and the value they can bring lower down the leagues as well in this country. Andy, but, can uh, you top minus 22? Uh, well, I, I don't think it's a competition to see, like, you know, what the numbers are, is, is it really? I mean, you know, I like that one the other day where when the US made Honduras play in Minnesota at minus oh. 20. I mean, that was a classic. You know, you see when they got the T-shirt wet and it froze in yeah. hand by the side of it. But listen, all these places, and we've all been to all these eastern places, whatever, but listen, it doesn't get much colder than Bishop Auckland, pal, let me tell you. <laughs> oh, Obviously, we had Bishop Auckland for a cup game, and it was on the... Um, and, and you ended up on... The only press facility was on the roof of the stand. Because I, I think I bumped into Chris Bonington up there. And I, 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 I literally... I literally... It was the old one. It was the old one where you got the half-time Bovril. And actually poured it over your hands rather than drank it. It was that cold. They were putting steaks in the freezer to defrost. It was just absolutely bitter. I remember because I think it was that game. Might have been another game, but it was Crew Alexandra in the FA Cup. Oh, okay. And was it that game? It was freezing. Was that? But there was one where freezing fog. I mean, it wasn't only cold, but we had freezing fog. And I remember Crew were on top, and it, it was freezing fog, and they were on top of the game, and eventually the referee called it off. Everyone got back onto the bus, freezing cold, you know, and it was such a dank, dark, freezing cold. I got back onto the bus, game abandoned. And then they had a head count. And they realised the goalkeeper was still out there. He thought they were just having a good spell of pressure. And he was stuck like in hypothermia. That game, that game, a Honduras game, two of them came off with hypothermia, didn't yeah. they? <laughs> I mean, you know, fancy coming off a game. Of, what have we got? Well, I've got a bit of a hammy, actually. No, well, well I, I just got... Just go so there's a stop touch these footballers, aren't there? They go off for anything these days. <laughs> so, so yeah, Bishop Organ for me. Yeah, you know, none of these fancy Dan, you know, Eastern European and and yeah. Scandinavian slots. Okay, guys, we're gonna have to wrap it up there. So uh, good stuff. 
once again, thanks to Andy, thanks to Matt, and thanks to David for coming on this week. And thanks to everyone for listening and watching, and we'll see you next week. Thank you. <laughs>